The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is an anteater on the move at UCI since 2015. He is Vice Chancellor of University Advancement and Alumni Relations, as well as the President of the UCI Foundation, Brian Hervey. He provides leadership over all aspects of the university's fundraising programs, alumni relations, and development initiatives. The university is currently involved in its biggest fundraising endeavor ever, the Bright Past Brilliant Future campaign with a goal of raising $2 billion. Wow, that's a big number. Lots to talk about. Welcome, Vice Chancellor Hervey. How are you today? I am doing great, Kevin. Thank you so much for the invitation. You're very welcome, sir. Let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Well, I was an Army brat, so I I grew up moving around and lived in places. I lived in Oklahoma and Texas and Virginia and Germany. And so, you know, we did a lot of traveling and seeing new places growing up, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any that you were particularly fond of or favorite? I think living in Germany was the most interesting. I was nine, 10 and 11 when I lived there. And so that was a great age to kind of explore a new country and a new area. It was a great experience, very eye-opening as well. I think international travel is great for people as they grow up to kind of see a, a different world. Yeah, I've always wanted to go and see some of the World War II famous spots. Did you get to see any? We did. My father was in the military, he was an army at that time, and so he kind of knew about battlefields. And so living in Virginia, we got to see the Civil War battlefields. And then living in in Europe, certainly there's amazing things to see there as well. So uh, it was a big part of growing up. Okay. And when you were in high school, how'd you decide what university to go to school at? Well, I was, uh, I thought I'd be in the military too. That's my family's tradition. My grandfather, my uncle, my father. And so I grew up with uh, at least the uh, aspiration to be in the military and follow in the, the family business, so to speak. And so I had an army scholarship. And so I applied for military schools, the academies, what I would call senior military schools. And so the only other school to sort of commission more officers than West Point in the army at the time was Texas A&M University. And uh, they had a full-time, you know, seven-day-a-week 
military program where you were uh, sort of uh, similar to an academy where you're you're in uniform every day. And so I uh, used my Army scholarship and attended Texas A&M. Oh, okay. And what did you major in? I was, uh, like many students, I changed majors a few times, but um, yeah, I really gained an interest in politics. I volunteered for some campaigns, and so I was a political science with a what's called a general minor in business. Uh-huh. And when you came out of school, what did you go into? So initially, I went into law enforcement. So I had kind of an interesting story. So I was doing my Army training, and my senior year was 1992. And what's unique about that year, it was the reduction in force in the military. Mm. And so they did not need all these second lieutenants who were ready to get out and, and go into the force. And, and the ones they did take, they didn't have any combat roles. They were all combat service support roles. And so the, a lot of us got a choice of whether we wanted to to go in. So I, I grew up thinking I was going to be and following in my family's footsteps. So they were pilots. So I was going into the Army to fly, to be a helicopter pilot. And so that was not an option in 92 because of the reduction in force. So they gave me an out. I was able to not go into active duty service. And so I went into law enforcement. I wanted to be in government service in some way. And that was one of the, my considerations. So I um, applied to the federal law enforcement services and ended up going to work for a, a local police department to get experience. Gotcha. And, and how long did you do that for? It was only about a year. I went through my training. It's kind of an interesting story. I, I did it while I was in school. So I, I was my senior year when I found out I was not going to the Army. I applied and, and was hired by a local police department probably really before I graduated from Texas A&M. And so I had done four years, but it was going to take me five to graduate. So sort of in the middle of school there, I, after the Army training, I went to police academy. And so I took basically a year off went to police academy and then was a patrol officer in Texas, but I couldn't take my classes. I thought I might be able to do both, but uh, with the shift work and, and the law enforcement work, I couldn't do both. And so I decided I better go back to school and finish up. So I left law enforcement, went back to school, finished up, and then kind of went into insurance and financial services for the most part. Gotcha. So how did you transition into development and fundraising? Well, actually, it was the birth of my son. So in 1997, he was born. We had some health issues, both with my ex-wife and my uh, son. And so we ended up going through an issue where he had to be delivered early and was in a neonatal intensive care unit. So everything's great now. As a matter of fact, he just graduated from college uh, a week ago uh, from the University of Texas in Dallas. And so Everything has worked out great with him, but it was a rough start. And so yeah. he was uh, in a neonatal intensive care unit of a, a hospital in Texas. And uh, at the time, and I was, I was at that time, I was in financial. I was studying for my a lot of my exams for uh, financial services. I was going to work for uh, at the time Dean Witter Reynolds, which is now <laughs> Morgan Stanley. It's merged many, many times. All those firms have merged. But right. I had him in the hospital, you know, on one wing, and I had my wife in in one side of the hospital being treated because of all the health issues. And so, you know, I was kind of sitting there thinking about what, what can I do to help? You know, what, mm. what uh, is sort of my next path? And so I did go into financial services, uh, stayed in that for another uh, couple of years. But what I started doing as a volunteer is helping hospitals, March of Dimes specifically, raise money for neonatal intensive care units. Mm. 
And so it was just as a volunteer, and I thought, well, this would be something I can do to, to make a difference. And long story short, over a couple of years, I was the vice president for development for March of Dimes for that area. It still was a volunteer. I was not a paid position. I was a stockbroker during the day and sort of doing this at night. But I really uh, enjoyed it, and mm-hmm. we were having a lot of success uh, in that area, raising a lot more money, and ended up building a neonatal intensive care unit within my community that I was living in. And so the one I had to visit when my son, or we had to go to when my son was born, was about an hour away. That was the closest one at the time, so we wanted one in our community. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did that, and I was asked by other community organizations to help them raise money. And, and soon I got on the radar screen of my alma mater, Texas A&M who called me and and wanted me to come on board to, at that time, be a plan giving officer to deal with the states and uh, fundraising on that side. And so I did that, decided that that, uh, I would turn this love of fundraising into hopefully a career. Mm -hmm. And that led to being with A&M for, let's see, I'm trying to think now how many years, uh, probably six or seven years between plan giving and then being a director of development uh, for student affairs at A&M and then for their medical school. And then after accomplishing that, we did a, a billion-dollar campaign for Texas A&M. At that time, I was offered an opportunity to actually go to the hospital where my son was treated. So in, in a pretty short time, sort of coming full circle, and I was the vice president for development and communications at that hospital system where he had been treated. And so I was able to help raise money for a children's hospital, build a full freestanding children's hospital, and build additional hospitals as well. So I, was, I spent then another six years helping uh, primarily to build hospitals and expand facilities. And uh, it was a wonderful job. And that sort of led to being recruited by UCI in health initially. Coming out here as UCI had major expansion plans that are now coming to fruition. Wow. Very good. Mr. Vice Chancellor, I keep hearing a lot of years in your story, years for this, years for that. For those of you out there in the, in the radio land, if you've seen photos of Brian Hervey, he looks very, very young. <laughs> so not, not <laughs> yeah, just he has a very youthful appearance, not, not college, but just kind of almost just out of college. But uh, you must get a little ribbing about that occasionally. I do. I do. I think it surprises people what my age is. And I remember fundraising, especially for Texas A&M, where they thought I was a student fundraising <laughs> as opposed to uh, you know, a director at the foundation. Right, 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 right. Well, very good. Excuse me just for a moment, uh, Vice Chancellor Hervey, while I update my audience. If you're joining us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. And my guest is UCI Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations, Brian Hervey. We're just getting to know the the vice chancellor and are now going to transition into the biggest philanthropic campaign in Orange County history, the UCI Bright Past Brilliant Future campaign. Brian, can you please just tell us all about this amazing campaign? I sure can. And and thank you for the question. So it it is, as you said, it is the, the largest campaign in Orange County history. And what we've seen with UCI, this is, uh, in some ways, what UCI has been doing has been a little bit of a secret, I think, to the community. That's what I heard when I got here, and and I think we've seen that as we've gone out to really talk about all the successes and all of these amazing experts that we have on campus to the community. And so, really, the campaign is all about doing two major things. One, it's about raising private support to support the mission of the campus, and it's also secondarily about 
our second major goal is about engaging alumni. Mm-hmm. And so alumni support is really key to UCI being successful. And, and the more that UCI does, the more that we accomplish, it really increases the value of that degree to all of the alumni who are here in 1965 to the current time. And so we really see trying to preserve the legacy and move the university forward through the campaign. And so it's an ambitious goal. The last campaign that actually ended the year I got here was a billion-dollar campaign. And then we immediately launched into a $2 billion campaign, doubling uh, the previous results. And so we're just approaching a billion dollars already in fundraising. And our goal is to engage about 75,000 alumni. And we've engaged uh, over 38,000 so far in the campaign. So we're well on the way. And I think that the support that we are receiving now is going to lead us quite quickly to hitting that goal and hopefully uh, above that. Well. Fantastic. My compliments to you and your team, Vice Chancellor. I have not seen a hiccup. I mean, from the rollout with the logo, the name of the the campaign, it's quite impressive. Can you tell us a little bit of the background? I know these things don't happen overnight. They don't happen by mistake. Can you tell us a little bit of the organization that went into it and and maybe how the name and and the logo came into being? I sure can. So, And when we came out of the last campaign, during that time, the university was doing a strategic plan. And this was not an advancement plan. This was a plan with university leadership that involved faculty, deans, uh, other campus leaders, staff, and students. And so this was a major strategic plan to determine what the university was going to accomplish in short and long-term goals. And so it was it was that process that led us to determining what the goals of the campaign would be. So when we talk about the $2 billion specifically, that is not determined by taking $2 billion and sort of dividing it among the schools and, and units. It was really looking at what would be both aspirational and impactful for the campus. You know, one of the kind of interesting facts and figures, I guess, for the campus is that you know, a lot of times people think that we're really paid. The state of California funds the campus and our operations. So why would we have to fundraise uh, versus, say, a private university that doesn't get state support? But in fact, we are incumbent upon private philanthropy. And as a matter of fact, in some years, the private philanthropy rivals the amount of money we get from the state. It's, it's not as much as people think. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the operations of the campus and a lot of the things that we want to do are not covered by the state of California even though we do get generous support, it requires the generous support of individuals and corporations and foundations to really do the many things that we want to do. And so that's kind of how we came up with the sort of the goals of the campaign is really listening to all the constituents. And so we really determined four goals based on that. One is to advance the American dream. The second is to transform healthcare and wellness. Third is to accelerate world-changing research. And fourth, to explore the human experience. And so we look at these four key pillars of the campaign as a way that we're going to be successful. If we can accomplish these things, and we do every day, our staff and our students and our faculty work hard every day to accomplish these goals. And to the extent that we can help them by providing more financial support, we believe the better the university will be. Great. And how about the title? Do you recall how that came into being? I do. So this was also a very consultative process. Uh, We got a lot of feedback. We tested different 
names to see what resonated with people. The name Brilliant Future is partially, when you hear brilliant, you, you hear that theme, you hear the theme of light very often on the campus. Fiat Lux, our system's motto is let there be light. And so if you look at the campaign names through the UC system or you know other themes that are developed, a lot of times they have that light element. And so that was where brilliant came from. And then this was, of course, to build the university of the future. And so brilliant future really resonated with people as what we were trying to do here. And the logo itself, which you might have seen, it's a multicolored sort of a, a wave of color, yeah. uh, was also heavily tested. And that was something that we really thought captured the imagination. It means different things to different people, of course, but was very visually stimulating and was able to, and we sort of like that wave because it kind of is a wave over and across the campus that connects us in so many different ways. And so, you know, it really seemed to resonate with people that, you know, we're all connected. You know, there's no silos here. We try to really work as a team. And so that sort of wave, and that, the other thing that wave does is it creates a visual mark that when you see materials, newsletters, letters, emails, uh, social media posts, they can include that element. And so you know that that's about the brilliant future. Gotcha. It, it really does strike me that way. I love seeing it. It's bright and it's, it's fun and uh, very identifiable. D- do I understand correctly that is the bright past brilliant future? Was bright past originally part of the title and has been dropped or maybe it was just secondary? Well, so that has been dropped from the name. Oh. So it oh. is the brilliant future campaign. Oh, okay. I think Bright Past was sort of a holdover from the previous campaign a little bit. Oh. But okay. it is the Brilliant Future campaign. Gotcha. And boy, with so much happening, do you find it challenging to keep up with everything that's going on at UCI? I know I do. Absolutely, Kevin. I think that, you know, I, I learn something new every day. And one of my favorite things and something I get to do a lot of is meet with different groups and different constituents on campus and learn what they're doing. And it's truly incredible what people are doing in these labs, in the classrooms, what the students are doing, what they're thinking about for their futures. So it really is gratifying to be a part of that and to help in some way. Right, right. In terms of either your time at UCI or or previously, can you describe, you know, any thrilling moments in fundraising. I don't know whether it's, you know, it's just unexpected, you know, it's like preparation and luck meeting at the same time. Are you at liberty to share anything like that? Absolutely. So I I would say that, you know, just in general, as a fundraiser, I think that a a milestone, if you're in major gifts, is sort of hitting that first $1 million gift, you know, and I I can remember, uh, this was when I was still in Texas. And, you know, I, I remember, meeting with a donor, just a little burger place, kind of uh, a little country store close to where he lived and, you know, sitting over a a burger and a Coke and and talking about the importance of supporting students. And I remember him at that uh, meeting, you know, pulling out his checkbook and, you know, we're all, you know, in blue jeans and kind of, you know, this was (laughs) a a very rustic kind of place. And for him to pull out his checkbook and write a check for a million dollars, I had never seen that happen before. And that was a, I remember that moment very vividly as he handed me that check. And, you know, I wiped the, the, you know, French fry grease off my hands to grab it. You know, I mean, it's just, it was just a, a kind of a surreal, but, but yeah. um, really impactful 
experience uh, right, for him right. to do that and, and to want to support our students at that level. And Did you have any idea that he would give such a major amount like that? Uh, we had been talking about it, but I didn't know he was going to do it that day. Ah. This was sort of a follow-up to an earlier meeting, and I, I didn't know he was quite ready to do that. So hmm. I'd hoped. Yeah. But And then so often people either transfer stock or they do other assets on large gifts. And so to be handed a paper check is, is also <laughs> a little unusual in these days and times. We had worked on big gifts like that, but that was, I think, the first time I'd ever had somebody hand me a paper check, just write it out as though, you know, that's just like every day. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, right. you know, I think in this campaign, clearly one of the, the moments that was just a, a real joy and also very impactful was uh, really sitting down with Henry and Susan Samueli when they filled out their agreement and signed their agreement to establish the Susan and Henry Samueli College of Health Sciences. That was a $200 million gift. And for them to have that philanthropic desire to make a huge difference to this campus and really to, to the world, because that was one of the largest, it was definitely the largest gift to the University of California, Irvine, but it was also one of the largest gifts to support public higher education in the U.S. And so it was very, very impactful. And, you know, they did it with such joy. They wanted to see a new way to bring together, you know, medical students and nursing students and public health and pharmacists together to think about healthcare in a new way. And they were willing to make a, a major investment to do that. So that was certainly one of the meetings. They signed that at their kitchen table at their home in Newport Beach, and Chancellor and I came over to, to visit with them. It was a, a really uh, amazing meeting. I've seen now, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking outside my window. I'm sitting in my office uh, on campus, and outside my window is the Susan and Henry Samueli building and the Sue and Bill Gross buildings coming up. Uh, they are under construction currently uh, just across the street. So it's uh, amazing to not only have been there for that gift, but to now see it coming to fruition. Wow. That must be very gratifying. Excuse me just for uh, another moment, Mr. Vice Chancellor. While I update our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI Vice Chancellor for Development, Brian Hervey. He's also the president of the UCI Foundation. Brian, please, can you distinguish what the foundation is, and is it part of the Brilliant Future campaign? It is. So the foundation actually is a part of UCI. So, you know, with some universities, they have a separate foundation, a 501c3 organization. It may be a supporting organization or, or otherwise organized that supports the campus. So within the UC system, each campus has sort of these two at least, but uh, in, in our cases, in every one of the 10 campuses has these 501c3 organizations. It has the foundation and has the Alumni Association. So while these are 501c3s on their own, they are connected to the campus. So we follow all the UC rules. You know, there are no employees of the foundation. We are all university employees. That's also true of the Alumni Association. And so both of those fall under my division. And so the foundation's key role is to, it really is the endowment. So we have a right at about a billion dollars currently in the foundation that we manage for the benefit of the campus. And that is governed by a board of trustees. We have about 63 trustees currently. And so those foundation board of trustees are, are for the most part, community members 
who have been connected to the campus for a long time and have been hugely supportive. Their key role is uh, really three things that the Board of Trustees does primarily. One is that they manage that endowment. Two, they advocate for the campus and spread the good word of uh, what's going on on campus. And three, they support it financially. Mm. And so trustees have a very important role. So that really is the foundation. It's a board of trustees and the endowment that is managed by that board. But it's all, you know, all the employees that support the foundation are university employees and advancement. It's really a key vehicle because it's where people give their money. They give it to the foundation. Certain types of assets are actually given to the board of regents directly. And uh, that's something we also facilitate through the foundation. Interesting. So did I hear you correctly that the current UCI endowment fund is at a billion dollars? It is. And it hit a billion just recently. Uh, It's been growing based on the number of gifts that have come in and the market returns. I see. Wow. That's interesting. Do we have a long-term goal for what, you know, you hear about some of these schools that have been around for a long, long time, having different size endowments. Is that talked about much in your area? It's like, oh yes, you know, by 2050, we want to be at this amount and and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. So we do set goals and, and monitor the endowment closely. But in terms of the campaign itself, there's no real goal. We know that the the endowment will go up by virtue of raising the $2 billion for the campus. So sort of in general terms, if you were to think about the $2 billion, that's not all going to go to endowment. Mm -hmm. It goes to projects that are capital projects uh, where the money is spent almost immediately. For instance, the Samuelian gross buildings across the street. And so that money will be spent or part of it will be. And then money that is earmarked for endowment will go to the foundation endowment and be managed by the foundation. And so just as in very rough terms, you can sort of divide that $2 billion up into about a third, a third, and a third. And it's amazing how these numbers kind of work out pretty close to this, that about a third will be capital, will be used for construction uh, on the campus. About a third would go to endowment, and about a third is current use, Mm. things where a donor would give money and say, I want you to use this right now for this purpose. And that is up to the donor. We don't set that, but it's amazing that those numbers kind of work out that way, that in a very large campaign that that donors, about, about a third, want to support buildings and and then a third want that legacy. And then again, people, a lot of times, like when you think about people writing $100, $500, $1,000 checks, rarely is that endowment. That's almost always current use money. And we get a lot of those, of course. How about big ticket items? I I know there's been talk of a, a medical center on the main campus. Is that is the Samueli uh, Center and the Gross Center? Is is that what they're talking about, or is there something in addition to that? They are connected, but not the same. So the the Samueli and the Gross buildings are part of the Samueli College of Health Sciences. So that is right here at Californian Bison on the main campus next to the Gavin Herbert I Institute. So those are academic buildings. The North Campus development, which when we talk about North Campus, we're referring to across the marshlands from main campus, right at Jamboree and Campus Drive. Now that whole area is being re-envisioned. And so uh, in January, the regents, January 2021, the regents will be giving their final approval for the medical campus development on that site. 
I shouldn't presuppose they're going to approve it, but that's when they review it. All signs point to a successful approval by the regents, but we'll wait until we hear from them directly. And so that project is generally clinical in nature. So the first building on that side is the Center for Advanced Care, basically a clinic building. We'll have pediatric and other clinics located in that building. And I'll be followed by several other buildings, ambulatory care center, parking structures, and the hospital. And so this whole complex of buildings will be the UCI Medical Center, Irvine, Newport. That's what it'll be called. And so it'll be really a hub. It's additive. So it's not replacing current facilities that UCI Health operates, for instance, the Medical Center in Orange. This is a brand new medical center of which we know the demand exists in this area uh, Mm -hmm. to have additional hospital and clinical care. So this is a purely a clinical site, but we'll have education and research elements as our students and our researchers use that facility to bring amazing ideas from the bench to the bedside. And so it's really an amazing project. And it's one that we need a lot of support for. So as we do these capital projects, donor support is extremely important to allow those projects to proceed. So this project will be no different. And there already have been major gifts made by donors to support the project and many more to come. Mm -hmm. Is it envisioned that it would be similar in size as the UCI Medical Center in Orange? Or is it hard to say at this time? Do you have a sense of that? So the current plan, so the initial plan as we open up the North Campus project will be that it is smaller. It's a smaller project, about, uh, I want to say about the the third the size in terms of the hospital. Mm -hmm. However, that's certainly expandable Mm -hmm. and will be expanded, I'm sure, over time as we have the land and the volumes pick up. Are there other so-called big ticket items that are, are looked at as part of the campaign? There are. So during the campaign, we received two amazing art gifts, art collection gifts, both the Gerald Buck Collection and the Irvine Museum Collection. So these two collections combined are probably almost 5,000 pieces of art, both Impressionists, some modern, all with a theme of California art. Mm -hmm. And so this led us to look back at the original plans of the university. So when the campus was first conceived of, there was a plan for a museum, an art museum, to be located on campus. Mm -hmm. So we are now following through with that. And planning to have the Institute and Museum of California Art on the UCI campus. And so that's fulfilling a lot of dreams, and that project will have to be philanthropically supported at a high level, probably close to you know, a goal of $100 million to do that project. Is that a university tradition? I I was recently up at Stanford and I just noted there were Rodin sculptures around and I didn't get to go to one or two of the museums that were listed as things to see and do up there. Is that a little bit of a university tradition or is it just, you know, here and there? You know, it's, you know, and I think the here and there is probably a little more accurate because many universities do not have museums, but Mm -hmm. You know, for research universities with a school of arts, a school of humanities, and even there's a, a health connection with, you know, having museums, it does seem to be unnatural for UCI to do this. We know that UCLA and Berkeley both have museums. UC Davis built a museum just a few years ago. So within the UC system, there's quite a precedent for it. And then, you know, the unique thing I think for UCI is that we have the art first, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> so we know that 
We just need to build a place to display it and one that is world-class to display California-themed art. And so uh, we see a real educational mission that can be achieved through building not just the museum, but the institute that goes with that. So that would be what would be different from, say, a community museum, an art museum, is that this one is really building upon the scholarship of the campus, not just a place to display art, but a place to research art and to teach about art and to conserve art. So it's a much more uh, a broader idea about a museum. But it's interesting you should mention Stanford. That is one of the places we went as we were thinking about our plans. We went to look at, at Stanford University's museums mm-hmm. um, because they, they have struck a very nice balance the way they've yeah. done that on campus. It does seem like that. And I will say that I've uh, had an opportunity to see the Irvine Museum of Art and I can just say that absolutely stunned. The paintings, the natural plein air paintings, California art paintings, whatever you want to call them, I, you know, I'm just a, I would say an average appreciator of paintings, but I found them absolutely stunning and beautiful to see. Well, I totally agree. And, and as people see what is in this collection, and they haven't seen it yet, we did a first look exhibit where we did show selected pieces from both collections over at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. And that was pretty incredible, just seeing, and that was just a few hundred pieces of the thousands of pieces actually in the collection. So most of it has not yet been seen by the public. So I'm very excited about this project moving forward. And like you, I'm I'm sort of a novice and I'm new to the California art scene, to be sure. And it's just incredible to see the beauty of these pieces. Oh, yeah, very good. Exciting. If you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations, Brian Hervey. We now get into the art and science of keeping a major fundraising campaign going and the difference between the UCI Foundation and the CE Roundtable. Here we go. Brian, as the campaign evolves, can you talk a little bit of just about how you keep it rolling? Is it just a matter of just trying to keep reaching out? Or, you know, I imagine that when you start the campaign, which started, I think, about 15 months ago, you know, you had your list of potential donors and people who you're involved with. How do you keep that momentum going? Is it is it a little bit a uh, balance between art and science? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think it is a little art and science, you might say. So there, there is a plan, a very hopefully well thought out and strategic plan of how we do this. And so we, you know, we spend several years actually in what we call a quiet phase where we talk to a lot of our key supporters about the campaign. So even before we announce, we have talked to people and we know where people's interests lie. And so so all of that happens. We do lots of research. So we have a big research team and a team that processes gifts and receipts and the stewardship of those gifts. And we have a big team that does the marketing and the planning of letters and emails and, and social media posts and all of this. So there's a big team behind the scenes that works every day to make sure the campaign stays relevant, that we make the changes we need to make, that we take care of. Uh, very importantly, we take care of our donors and our constituents on campus to make sure that you know, all of the right information is out there when it needs to get out there. It's a big undertaking. It is something that 
almost every nonprofit organization has to do in one form or another. So a campaign is really just a tool. It's just a, a way to say, you know, we're going to set a, a set period of time and establish goals for that, that period of time that are relevant today. And it sort of sets a, a relatively short-term fundraising goal. And, and campaigns are very successful at doing that. And we're having success, I think, to, to move the campus to a different paradigm. As I mentioned, the previous campaign, the campus raised a billion dollars and will double it or more in this campaign. And so it really very quickly moves the campus forward in a big way. Do you have any time deadlines in terms of you know how long the campaign will last? Well, we never actually set a closing date for the campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and many times you don't. You know, internally, we would like for this public phase of the campaign, which you mentioned, is just about fifteen months in. You know, typically that should be completed in about four years. That's our goal: is to complete this in about four years. But you know, COVID certainly has had an effect. You know, we haven't been on campus at least in, in fully had the uh, staff on campus, and which also means you're not doing the number of visits that we were doing before, where we're sitting in people's living rooms and talking about the campaign Right. Uh, really since February. And so that might have a little bit of a delaying effect, but I'm not amending the goals at this point. We don't plan to. I think that you know what I might amend is time a little bit, given this current pandemic. Gotcha, which makes sense. Brian, can you describe what's the difference between the foundation and the UCI roundtable? Is that a subset of the foundation or something completely separate? It's it's connected but completely separate in the, in the sense that the CE roundtable, the chief executive roundtable, is a group that's organized out of the chancellor's office. And so that's a group of local, uh, typically chief executive officers or senior management of local companies that want to collaborate with UCI. And so they get together several times a year, but it's, it's not an organization that comes through the foundation or through advancement. It's actually through the chancellor's office. I see. Anything particularly proud in your career that you've worked on projects in the past? Well, I'm very proud of some of the things we just mentioned, actually. The College of Health Sciences will be something that will impact this campus forever. It's a real change, not just in structures on the campus, but in the way that that will change health education for the future. So I'm, I'm very proud to have been a part of that. Very proud to have been a part of the School of Nursing, the formation of that through the, the initial gift uh, from Sue and Bill Gross. I think over time, I've spent about half my career probably on the health side specifically and my fundraising side. And so you know, prior to coming to UCI, it was a lot about building hospitals. And so I look back at that very proudly, the impact we've had in you know, providing health care. I think on the campus side, a lot of what I did was building scholarship programs, and we're doing that here. And so we're currently in the process of actually at the, at the tail end now of sort of overhauling UCI scholarship programs and increasing the dollars. And so we've seen just in the last few months about $5 million pledged towards student scholarships. And I see that as a huge legacy and one that, that I always feel good if we can leave a legacy that, you know, endowed scholarships will last forever. And so increasing the amount of student support is really a, a key goal for us, and we're achieving that. Fantastic. It's great to hear. 
How about in terms of for the students listening out there, do you have any story or anything to share in terms of career adversity? Is there a time that you can think of that was a rough time in your career and, and this is how you saw your way through it or give an example of, you know, might be helpful to, for somebody to hear? Sure. Thanks, Kevin. I think, you know, as I, I think about my career, early in my career, I did a whole lot of things. And so I mentioned the police work and the military training. And, you know, and actually, you know, I talked about the path to being a fundraiser, but in between graduating from school and my first few jobs in financial services, I tried lots of different things. And I'm glad I did that. So I didn't see that as adversity. I, I chose to go from one thing to the next to see, you know, what I enjoyed doing. So, you know, I had everything from I was a, a contractor for a defense contracting firm doing secret clearance work to, doing car sales. I ran a car lot. I ran a (laughs) pizza franchise. I did all of these things over a period of years early in my career that allowed me to decide what is it that I really, really like doing. And so I think that, you know, what I always encourage people to do, especially students as they're thinking about their career is, you know, it's not sort of this linear laid out thing. You know, you've got to be willing to take chances, take opportunities and try things, you know, try things that maybe you'd didn't know you would like, but it builds that experience base so that when you do decide that this is the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my career for a long time, that you're not left sort of wondering, well, what was the other paths? I think you have to to be open to the opportunities that exist out there and and try things out. As well, no, it takes, there's lots of competition out there. You've got to work hard. You've got to be dedicated to what you're doing. For me, it's always been, you know, try to, I, I look at rankings. I'm very competitive. So I'm always looking at how much I'm raising versus everybody else, how much am I traveling, how many visits am I doing versus other people, because I always want to be on the top of that list. And so that competitive nature and competitive drive, I think, is very important, whether it's advancement and fundraising or it's anything else. I think in every area that we work, wanting to be the best is really a key attribute. Well said. Finally, bringing it all the way down to on a personal side, I understand that in your spare time that you're a, a bit of a guitar player. Is, did I get that right? <laughs> I am. Yeah, I just played the other night. Before moving to Irvine, I lived in Austin, Texas, and I had come from a musical family. So I'm, I am a guitar player, electric and acoustic guitars, and yeah. got to perform a little bit in Austin, but I haven't performed out here. Now it's just sort of uh, something I do when I have some time, and, and I really enjoy just sitting down and playing mainly 80s rock music for the most part. Seems to be my favorite uh, music to play or even new wave, uh, Smiths and Morrissey and older stuff, James Taylor and some of that. I mean, just great guitar music. Yes, I do. That's definitely one of my favorite pastimes. Uh, Great. Well, Mr. Vice Chancellor, thank you so much for being with us today. We learned a lot about development, fundraising and and the school in general and, and where we're going. Thank you and your team for all that you're doing. It really is a brilliant future that's being built and we're in good hands, it sounds like. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you again to UCI Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations, Brian Hervey. As everyone can see, UCI continues to evolve, grow, and make a tremendous difference in the world we live. That growth will be fueled by the generous gifts of UCI alumni and community supporters. We are in good hands with the Brilliant Future campaign, Brian Hervey's leadership, and his development team. 
And as always, thank you to my blues brother, Fred Kaplan, for supplying my show theme music from his terrific blues CD, Signifying. Check it out. And don't forget, you can always contact me at my email at kboss at kuci.org. And my show archive is available 24-7 at my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Now coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where business solutions are the topic of the week, discussed with local business leaders. Stay tuned. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. It has been an amazing year on UCI Conversations. I thank all my guests and all my listeners. I am grateful to you all. Keep fighting the good fight against COVID-19. Continue to wear your masks and socially distance. See you all in 2021. Happy New Year, everybody.